Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode four of series 11 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. The nature of work and workplaces was already changing, but the pandemic has fast forwarded many aspects of the future of work. Today's guest is Ethan Bernstein, who is an associate professor in the Organisational Behaviour Unit at the Harvard Business School. He teaches the second year MBA course in Managing Human Capital, the Harvard Business School online course on developing yourself as a leader and various executive education programs. Ethan studies the impact of workplace transparency, the observability of employee activities, routines, behaviours, output and performance on productivity with implications for leadership, collaboration, organisation design and new forms of organising. Together with others, Ethan has conducted research during the pandemic to understand the implications of working without an office, which sought to answer a number of questions. Paramount amongst them was what impact has working from home had on productivity and creativity. The discussion that follows is rich, wide-ranging and consistently fascinating. Ethan is one of the most interesting, knowledgeable and witty guests we've had on the show yet. Sit back and enjoy. In our conversation, Ethan and I discuss the key findings of his research on the impact of remote working and the impact it's having on productivity and innovation. We look at the implications post-pandemic for work collaboration and workplace design. We look at how well-equipped HR functions have thrived during the crises of 2020. Ethan also tells us what the future leaders he teaches in his Harvard MBA course are saying about the role of HR. And we look at the role of HR in workplace design and in helping prepare their organisations for hybrid ways of working. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested or involved in workplace transparency, technology, people analytics and future ways of working. So that's business leaders, CHROs and anyone in a people analytics, strategic workforce planning, HR tech or HR business partner role. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Orgview. In an era when market dynamics are constantly shifting, Orgview is the leading organisational planning and design software that puts businesses on the front foot. It harnesses the power of data and modelling to build more adaptable and better performing organisations. What Orgview does best is give you control of your organisation and, with the data evidence, help you make faster, more confident decisions to get the right people doing the right work at the right cost. This is real-time organisational decision-making for times of change. That's why Orgview is used by the world's foremost companies and consulting firms to fearlessly build their organisations of the future today. To discover more, visit the website at orgview.com. That's orgvue.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ethan Bernstein, Associate Professor in the Organisational Behaviour Unit at the Harvard Business School to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Ethan, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Can you provide listeners uh, to, with a brief introduction to what you teach at, at HBS and also the specific areas of your research as well? Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say I'm a little bit intimidated to be here with the, the leader of my HR future. I, I feel as though I, um, I, I'm going to be asking you more questions that you should be asking me, but, uh, but I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you. I, uh, at HBS, I'm the Edward W. Conard, Associate Professor of Business and Administration, where I'm in the um, Leadership and Organizational Behavior Unit. And in that unit, uh, I teach the Managing Human Capital course and our virtual Developing Yourself as a Leader course. Um, And I do research on the increasingly transparent workplace, its impact on employee behaviors, and the impact of those changing behaviors on performance of organizations. 
Perfect. Well, I can assure you, Ethan, people are tuning in to listen to you and not me. So I'll definitely hope the balance will be uh, mainly you talking, but I think you might be challenging me on that a little bit as we go. So let's begin with your focus uh, areas of your research around workplace transparency. Firstly, what does that what does that involve? Well, transparency means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I try to come to it with the most simple definition. We tend to think of something as transparent, uh, like a glass of water, if we can see through it. And so Partly that's in physical form. We can see more of the effort that's going around our organizations today. Of course, that was true before the pandemic when we were in open offices. And so I was very interested in the ways in which open offices change behaviors. It was true in factories, which have for now a couple decades focused on the, the visual factory, the ability to see work getting done, see where there pro- might be problems and find ways of solving them more quickly. And, and of course, many of those changes have been very productive for workplaces across industries. I tend to have a particular proclivity for those places where it turns out to be less productive or perhaps better said, counterintuitive implications of the fact that we see human beings and therefore human beings, because they are human beings, change the way they do their work and they change them in ways that are unintended and sometimes counterproductive. I mean, again, we could probably talk about going to depth. So what are some of the Few, few examples of the key findings of your research, something that you think will really pique the interest of, of people listening. So one of my first pieces of research um, that made its way into an HBR called the Transparency Trap uh, was in part based on a study I did in China where we really, I mean, it was, a, it was about as transparent a workplace as you can imagine. It's large factory making mobile devices, one of the largest in the world. You could cross, see across football fields, plural, uh, lengths of, of factory floors. And the thought was, well, this, gee, this must actually be not just very productive, but a, a good way of working. And I embedded in a very non-transparent way, ironically, a few um, college students, Harvard college students in the line, as, and they were, they'd all been born in, and had lived in China for extended periods of time. So, so they fit right in. No one knew that they were anything other than ordinary workers. And we immediately discovered, David, that there were two ways that they were trained to work just on the very first day. One way when people were watching and one way when people weren't. And they knew because it turns out if you have a transparent factory floor, it's not just that everyone can see you, you can also see everybody else. So as managers who'd been trained in management by walking around, walked around, everyone changed the way they did things. And they changed things to meet the expectations of the managers, which turned out to be less productive ways of working because they'd done this 2,000 times a day times X number of days. If you do things enough times, you find little tricks and, and ways of doing things better. And the cost of explaining to the engineer or the manager that I found a better way of doing things is not as great as the benefit you get from that conversation. So instead, you just make everyone happy in their own words. You do it one way when they're watching, you do it another way when they're not. Um, and so we wanted to solve that. And to bring make a long story short... <laughs> After all the HR interventions I considered, and I'm sure the listeners of the, this um, podcast will think of cultural innovation, power-based innovation, in, 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 um, changes, etc. Depending on who you are, you think of all sorts of ways that you would try to change this, this, the way this place was working. We decided at their own suggestion uh, to put up curtains. We just put curtains up around the line, not around individuals. These were not telephone booths or, or other kinds of booth-like environments. These were literally just curtains around, like think of a hospital bed curtain around an entire line. 
And the lines that had those curtains, and we did this very carefully to correct for Hawthorne effects and all the other things that a rigorous academic would want to correct for, the curtained lines did really, honestly, somewhere between 10 and 13% better over a long period of time. They, they got a jump in performance and stayed there. And that increase in performance really came from the fact that they simply were not subject to as much transparency as they otherwise had felt before. Um, and they got a lot, we can go into more detail, but you asked for a short answer, that's the short answer. That, that's, that's what got me started in this. Um, and that's how I made my way to open offices, because then everyone wanted to know, is the same through of open office? That's a little bit different. So in, a, in another article that I've, I've since written about open offices, we used more of the technologies that you're familiar with, the people analytics-based technologies, sociometric badges and such, to measure how people change their interactions as they went from a transition to from more traditional cubicle-like offices to really open spaces. Think of, you know, the newest form of, of an office before pandemic. And um, we found that despite at least this organization's desire to bring people, quote unquote, together in open spaces to have them interact more face to face, when you took down those boundaries, you got substantially less, substantially less face to face interaction. And people moved their interaction online into email, into IM. We tracked, we tracked all the digital traces. Again, not necessarily a bad or a good result, just an unintended consequence uh, and not at all what this organization was expecting to see. Yeah, probably quite counterintuitive to the whole reason for doing it in the first place. They probably thought they're bringing people together. They probably they may have been doing it digitally, but that obviously, as you say, was an unintended consequence. But actually, they were doing the opposite of bringing people together. Interesting. And you know, it's it's counterintuitive for us as managers and leaders and HR professionals. As people, it's probably not counterintuitive at all. We like privacy. We have a natural human need for privacy. It's either individual or group level privacy. We do things differently when we have an audience, like I expect to have, you know, like we expect you and I expect to have one right now. So we're speaking a little bit differently. We've got a little bit more, um, probably adrenaline running through our, our uh, bodies as well. But that effect, it's a very human effect. So as you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It just, it's not how we tend to act as managers because we've never had the levels of transparency and the tools for transparency that we have today. We've always been fighting for more because we haven't had enough. Now we're suddenly in a world in which we might actually have too much and privacy has become more expensive than transparency and we're not exactly sure how to make sure that we, we use the tools for privacy well while keeping the benefits that the tools for transparency have brought us over the last 30 or 40 years. Well, we're definitely going to come to the privacy angle a little bit later. And we're also going to start talking about some of the research that you've been doing since the pandemic started as well. But before we do, I know you've also done some work around the whole thing around rhythm and collaboration as well. And I thought that would be quite an interesting thing to share with, with listeners before we, we plow into the pandemic. <laughs> and this comes from some of the work I've already talked about, but also you can imagine, David, I think you've done some work over time on the sociometric badges, on the, on the work that came out of the Media Lab on this idea of tracking people's interactions digitally and face-to-face. -face. If you combine those two themes, and maybe I'm stretching a little bit here, David, you'll correct me. If you're at least in my mind, you start to see an interesting movement towards always on. Not just in always on because my smartphone is on and I have it with me, but always on, like always communicating with one another. And 
And actually, the move towards open offices was an attempt to increase that. If that's A, an open office is not necessarily what they do, and B, if you go to that factory study, not quite what we want if productivity is the goal, then, then I owe everybody a better answer than it depends and we don't have the answer. I mean, that just, that's not what they pay me for at HBS. I don't think that's what they pay me for at HBS. That's not why you brought me on the show. And so we set out to try to understand more broadly what is the rhythm of collaboration that we're seeking? And that's how we framed the question. And we did some studies that showed that actually it's not always on and it's not always off if we're problem solving, which is what we focused on. It's actually something in between. It's an on and off that, interestingly enough, if you look at the real world 30 years ago, we had it naturally because we'd have meetings and then we'd have isolation and then we'd have meetings and then we'd have isolation. Technology has given us the option of not having that kind of alternation, the silence and sound of a rhythm, but instead constant on. And what that's done is defaulted us towards acting that way. And what we suggest is that actually managers, whether they're HR managers or general managers today, have a harder challenge than they did 20 years ago because now they have to set the offs as well as the on in order to actually get that rhythm. But that's what we find will yield um, the most fruit in good human behavior and ultimately productive behavior in workplaces. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to move on to the, the pandemic now, but certainly some of the people analytics practitioners I've been talking to recently, some of the research they've been doing in their own organizations during the pandemic is this, is this importance around focus time, which I guess is, as what you're saying, getting that rhythm right. So yes, we, we know that we're going to be doing lots of calls via Zoom and Teams and, and other platforms, but we also need to have that focus time to, to, get out, to get, get our work done effectively, because we know that if we get interrupted continually, we're not going to be able to do that, or we're going to stress and, and work long hours. So it's, it's quite interesting, which I think leads quite nicely onto some of the research that you've done in the pandemic. I'm certainly not going to try and predict the future after the events of this year. I think it's, it's fraught, with, uh, fraught with challenges. I think it's fairly safe to assume, though, that the crises of 2020 have fast-forwarded many aspects of the future of work, if we can use the inverted commas around that title. And I know that you've been involved in some research associated with the largest remote working experiment in history. And I think you framed that initially around what the impact working from home had had on productivity and creativity. And I know that research was published in, in the summer. It would be great to share some of those key findings, I think, with listeners here, those that haven't read it. And maybe if you've been doing more research since, how those findings have developed. Absolutely. So uh, to, to take a step back, you know, this is work, all the work I've described actually is, is with many different fantastic uh, collaborators. In this case, I joined up with Haley Blunden uh, at HBS, Andrew Brodsky and Wanden Sohn at um, UT Austin um, Combs School of Business, and Ben Weber, who's an old-time friend and the CEO of Humanize. We mentioned the sociometric badges. He was one of the people on boots on the ground when Sandy and, and the group were first creating those media lab um, at MIT. We, we got together and looked at some survey results. That, that was the starting point. And the survey that we've been running is, is unique, I think, in the following way. We've been asking people, uh, a, a rep, not really a representative sampling, but a diverse sampling of people in the United States who've been working from home every two weeks, the same set of questions since they began working um, at home because of the pandemic. We started with 600. It's come down a bit since then, but at least the original work was with 600 people, roughly half women, half men, 
half of them married, a third of them have children, about 40% managers, 60% individual contributors, again, all working virtually. And we asked them, this was nothing like new or, or novel, all the normal stuff, job satisfaction, work engagement, perceptions of own performance, how they rated their conflicts with colleagues, stress negative. What made this interesting was not the questions we asked, what made this interesting was the context in which we asked them and the longitudinal nature of them. And then we paired that data um, and continue to pair that data with data that Ben is collecting from various organizations uh, that are sociometric in nature. So not just what people perceive, but actually how they are working, um, what their interactions are like digitally, because it's not in person, digitally um, over the course of the same amount of time. And then we interviewed some leaders too. And that combination of data led to some interesting findings that I summarized. I, I choose, there are three curves. There is the, we, we sort of optimistically named this the we can do this curve. I realize we're now in December. It feels a little bit less optimistic, although work-wise it has been. You know, employee stress, negative emotions, task conflict, all steadily falling since virtual work began. People have figured out how to do this, and they framed it. We also ask an open-ended question, so we get a lot of interesting qualitative responses. People say, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been taking my Zoom skills to the next level. Um, you know, we're figuring out how to do this. It's starting to feel like business as usual. It's weird how normal everything has become, the virtual meetings, the emails, everyone looking grungy, you know, whatever it is. And these are their own quotes. They've gotten into the groove of working from home and they actually, many of them say they love it. And that's, that's this, we can do this curve. So that's one. The second curve to pick up on what we're all still hoping to see in the economy is the V curve. Uh, this idea that we dive down and bounce back up and job satisfaction and engagement both followed that path. So people felt less engaged and less satisfied sharply after two weeks of working virtually, but it recovered almost as sharply after that. And we've seen it basically plateau and not go back down. We, I mean, there are little blips here and there that I think at this point might be more due to the, to the news cycles on the pandemic that it is due perhaps to the workplace um, effects themselves, but, but they have recovered. And, you know, it took one set person said it took some time to get used to it and for things to go right. It was a learning process, but they actually said we got into a rhythm. I was so happy when I see that word after, you know, after my own work, but this is the, you know, finding the rhythm. And then the third curve, which looks really boring, but to me is just as interesting, if not more so, and I think it'll be the same is true of you, is the flat line. So people have consistently rated their perceptions of own performance roughly unchanged. Now, in part, that's because, as Ben finds, workdays are 10 to 20% longer, um, and, and we're just doing everything we possibly need to do to keep that performance the same under stress of the world and all that it means for our job. Stress is harder for people with kids and not as hard for people with spouses. It, it, all, all these things are highly predictable. But if you think of the combination of those things, it's actually a pretty good story for us, at least on average. I get very excited by this because I do think it offers us both a spirit and a path forward for how work might change and might have been accelerated by the last nine months. This is, there may be lots of silver linings here. Um, interestingly, we thought, well, the introverts will love this and the extroverts won't. And by and large, that was insignificant. We did not find a distinction there because remember, we asked all sorts of personality traits. But people who were more agreeable on the traditional measure of agreeableness um, did much better in adapting to the pandemic work. People who are more narcissistic did much worse. And so that, that 
tells us a little bit about how this new future of work might evolve given who we're favoring and who we're not in this particular way. Last thing, David, and then I really will let you in. Um, for those who aren't watching the video, you can see David sitting here nodding, smiling. So he's encouraging me to keep going. Communication, because we talked about this rhythm before, strong tie communication, people that we knew well, we're communicating roughly 40% or, or more, more with, not less. We're actually communicating more with those people who we need to, to communicate with to get the basic functions of our job done or with whom we already had strong ties. Weak ties are down. Communication is down at least 10%, probably much more than that at this point. And Ben's concern, and I, I echo it on that, is much of the work that's been done using people analytics shows that organizational health in the long term drives from the weak tie networks that provide unique and novel information to us in the short term. And so it may well may be that we have a challenge for creativity, a challenge for innovation, a challenge for information and knowledge generation and learning in the next 18 months because we've underinvested in the weak ties in these nine months that would lead us to do well then. And, and that's a, a cautionary tale from all of it. Interesting. Well, I suppose anything that, that is bad for narcissists isn't necessarily a bad thing. What is interesting, though, I think, is that finding that you said that People that you collaborate with regularly, I guess people in your own team, you maybe your best friends at work, you know, that collaboration is up, but collaboration with our weaker ties is going down. And I think when you actually look at that on a network map, typically those are the, they are the connections that connect different teams together. And as you said, drive innovation and creativity within organizations. Now, I guess it's too early to come to, to any firm conclusions yet, but I share your concerns about the next 18 months and interestingly we had Michael Arena on uh, the podcast a couple of months ago and, and he said exactly the same some of the research that they're doing he's doing with Rob Cross and others he's finding the same things around those kind of bridge connections if we, if we call them that so uh, so that that is quite interesting so obviously you've got a we'll have a view based on um, you know your your research that prior to the pandemic and some of the stuff you've been doing since so if we if we're brave enough to look post-pandemic, and let's hope that comes as, as soon as possible, we can imagine that we'll probably be, you know, not everyone, but we can imagine a more hybrid way of working, perhaps. Um, and the type of work that we do together in the office may be more collaborative, may be driven towards the creative and the innovative tasks that we've got. What does this mean for, for workplace design? And I'm thinking about the, the, the research that you've done around transparency previously. David, you know that I, I like to say that as an academic, I prefer to predict the past rather than the future. But that said, we actually do have some research to suggest at least some of what I think will happen. Uh, and I haven't heard a lot of people say this. Here's prediction number one, and then I'm going to ask you if you think that that is indeed what's going to happen. Prediction number one. As human beings, because we are very good at remembering the better things in the past and forgetting the worse. Uh, I have two kids. They're, that's evidence of that just in and of itself. Um, you know, I think we're all longing for re a return to the office right now. And we don't long for it with masks on and we don't long for it with social distancing. We don't long for it. In, but, but we long for actually a vaccinated world in which we can go back to what we were doing before. Because we have forgotten how much we dislike our commute to work, how much we dislike the smell of tuna at lunchtime in the open offices we used to inhabit, because we've forgotten about what it means to not get work done during the day and having to do it at night, because that's our only focus time. We've, we've actually 
We've forgotten about all the logistical frustrations, all of the workplace frustrations of what it was like before. I think that will last for a grand total of maybe a week or two after we all move back to the, to the quote unquote real world. And that's, the, that's going to be the really interesting moment because then we're going to end up nostalgic for the things we remember that actually were really good about this time. Not just the things that are absent, the wasted time waiting for a delayed flight in the airport or you know whatever else might be the case with our travels as it come, they come back, but also, you know, in my case, saying goodnight to my kids every night since March um, because I'm not traveling, not you know, feeling like I actually get maybe twice as much work done these days, at least certain days, because I have that opportunity. And we're going to naturally want to put the two together. And that yields a couple of key questions, because that's the kind of thing we haven't necessarily been successful at doing before. And that's not, I don't think, the fault of all the HR professionals listening uh, to the podcast. That's actually all of our faults, because it's if you work from home, you're always sort of a second-class citizen if the default is working from the office, because it's difficult to make people remember both muscles, virtual and and non-virtual in person. It's difficult for people, for human beings, especially collectively, to make decisions that are good for the collective and not just good for the individual. We haven't been good at this. And so the question is, what do we do? And I do think it starts with three things. Um, it starts with one, continuing to experiment. We're not going to figure this out as just, you know, with a bunch of brain power. This is not the, I listen to the Harvard professor and he'll tell you the answer. Um, this is a we're actually going to have to keep trying, put the same spirit into the hybrid world that we put into, into the pandemic world for the last nine months. I think, too, that as I've suggested, these are both muscles. And so Gail King, who's the CAO and EVP at Nationwide, uh, as they've started moving people back to the office, she's intentionally ensured that everyone gets to flex both muscles, virtual and in-person. Because you, A, get empathy for the other, and B, you just remember how to do it so that you're not forgetting that, you, oh, I could put something in the chat here instead of taking an extra five minutes of airtime with everybody listening. There's, there's this joining of power. Let's keep that in Slack. Let's put this here. That only comes from us collectively having those muscles. The third is, I, I still think the office, office space has to be thought of as an add-on. We just can't go back to the costs if you're an, a real estate professional inflexibilities, if you're an HR professional, of thinking that everything has to default to the office. If instead we assume, well, you know, people can get work done in the future of work virtually, which we kind of have a lot of evidence we can now, we should re-envision the office for the things like onboarding new people, for the things like building weak ties by fostering relationships that otherwise wouldn't get fostered. For the things like that so-called water cooler conversation that doesn't have to be a water cooler conversation, but is frankly easier in, in, a, in a physical space than it is in a virtual space. As one, of, as one of our respondents put it in their survey, one can only have so many Zoom happy hours. I mean, there's, just, there's a limitation to breakout rooms and how much we can adore them or, or despise them. We can design spaces and approaches that take best of both. Um, but but we're going to have to do that intentionally. We're going to have to structure our organizations to do it. So organizations getting rid of physical spaces should think about investing in people who are responsible for this, like heads of remote work, we say in the article. 
let's just say um, maybe stipends for people to invest in work from home devices that will help them do this well. And if we do all of this, half of it will work and half of it won't, but 50% is actually a better rate than we've had in the past. So let's just keep our, our relative expectations appropriate and use all the people analytics and data tools we have to figure out if it's working. And that's my recipe, David, but, but you are more the futurist than I. What do you think? <laughs> well, I definitely, I, I, I like your comment about we're going to have to be intentional because I think, you know, maybe we haven't, we've just said, oh, people can work from home one or two days a week. We don't think about the work that, could be done more productively at home. You know, there are, let's be honest, there are a, a, a group of leaders and managers in, in different companies, some in higher, you know, some in bigger numbers than others that feel that if they can't see people doing the work, then they mustn't be working. And as you said, I think, well, we've got the data to show that actually people are working just as hard, if not harder, um, remotely, and in some cases actually being more productive. What will be interesting is if we start to look, you know, what is the cost of people being more productive at home and working longer hours? And what is the impact on wellness and health and, and other things related to that? And I guess we don't really know yet because uh, it's probably too early. So I love your idea. You know, we're going to we're going to need to experiment. Uh, we're going to need to look at a number of different factors. And we're also going to ex accept that some people actually prefer working predominantly from an office and other people prefer predominantly working from home and it doesn't mean that either is right because I guess you know it's all right for me someone in my 40s living in a reasonably large house you know with with, with my wife and kids my wife doesn't work so she looks after the children so that they don't really impinge on me working longer hours I have a I have an office set up uh, to do that um, but if I was 15 20 years younger I'd probably be living in shared accommodation in London I'd have a bedroom um, and I wouldn't really want to work from home because I want to go in the office, build community, build connections to the right people in the organization and, and, and help progress my career. And I guess that's the, the kind of employee preference piece that companies are going to have to think about. So I'm going to turn it back to you now and just say, you know, in the organizations that you've studied, is there anyone that's already, you know, obviously it'll be prior to the pandemic. Is there, is there any organizations that you've worked with that have got this hybrid workplace thing working quite well? It's hard because they're still confined by the, by the pandemic safety concerns. So, so I think actually most of the organizations that are interesting to study are ones that are foreseeing the future rather than actually already in it. I think they would split into two different groups. And actually, this I find the same is true of my students, my MBA students, who I just finished teaching a semester, have a similar division in the way they see things. There are those who actually think that now that we have the collective experience of having done this virtually, that actually, as long as we continue to have that memory, David, we'll, we'll actually do better. Um, and that we can let people who, who want to be in the office be in the office. We can let people who want to be at home be at home. By the way, that's not a switch that goes on once and stays on. Our circumstances change on a, you know, we're human beings with lots of other human beings. Like the interdependence amongst human beings means that sometimes we want to be one place, sometimes we want to be other, another. It might very well be that that becomes very flexible. And that's certainly one environment. Um, I, I, for example, I sit on the board of directors for Protocol Labs, which has never had a headquarters, never intends to. They do virtual work quite well. They're going to continue to do that. They've never had an interruption. Um, but when they need to come together to, to you know, sort of really force through uh, an important project, they, they've done that in the past. I think they'll continue to do that. And it's typically a time-delimited 
and often location and specific things. So that I think is one answer. The other answer, honestly, there are a lot of people out there who believe that by the time, and, and I'm not going to predict when we're able to go back into offices, but by the time we're able to, let's just say we're halfway through, just as a, as a guess, maybe we're three quarters of the way through. We've got a number of months ahead of us. There are people who think technology is going to solve all this before, <laughs> before we make it back into the office. And they might be right, in which case virtual might end up being more relevant. Again, I'm, I'm affiliated with uh, as a board member and having known the founder since he was in grad school many years ago uh, with a company called Module Q. Module Q partners with Microsoft, Teams, and Refinitiv and others to provide people in teams with real-time information that they wouldn't otherwise get about what's going on in the news and ultimately might be even what's going on in other teams within the organization that Q thinks are relevant based on the conversations you are having in teams. So just think about that. We've struggled decades to figure out how to get knowledge from one place in the organization to another because the conduit is always people. And people don't, don't silo bust particularly well and they're, they're time limited. And AI is not either of those things. And so increasingly, if we can create weak ties without going through the, you know, sort of the motions of, which I, by the way, have never particularly loved of like standing in a bar, yelling at somebody because it's loud around me, having a drink and not sure that I'll ever actually have a normal, useful conversation, but hoping that one weak tie will be formed. We might actually be able to craft these in ways that, that solve the problem better than we've ever thought of solving them before. And there are people at legitimate companies who are planning on that future rather than the, the other form of hybrid future. And I can't predict which is which. I just think those two paths are probably equally valid to investigate, especially if you are an HR professional. And by the way, my students who aren't all going to become HR people, most of them are going to be general managers. That's what they want from HR. They want people like you, people like those who are listening to this podcast, they want those people to be entertaining that set of choices so that they get the benefit of both. And ultimately, if one wins, fabulous, but we've learned along the way. Yeah. And actually, that turns it quite nicely to the role of HR now on the next couple of questions, really. What do you believe the, the you know, as we said, most of our listeners work in, work in HR, what do you believe the role of HR should be in workplace design? It's not something that most HR functions have traditionally got involved with, but you could see an input from HR and people analytics teams in particular around this? I'm, I'm, I think many of us already seen this change. People analytics has done a lot to help us think about real estate and HR being two people-oriented functions. There are chief administrative officers like Gail, actually, but others, you know, chief people officers who, who have real estate within their portfolio. Um, and that's given them a leg up in this particular environment. Uh, for obvious reasons. And it was even there a little bit before the pandemic. As you know, David, because you were kind enough to mention it in your LinkedIn posts, I wrote a piece on smart buildings, not because I have a lot of background in real estate, although I have an increasing number of fans and haters um, in that space for obvious reasons after I wrote my open office article. Um, I've never gotten hate mail before. I was kind of excited to get my first piece. Smart has had this technological meaning when it was attached to the word building. And yet we also believe people are smart. A real definition of smart has to incorporate both. It has to not just be about the data, but the way we use it. Having data is not useful if we're not using it. It can't just be about the definition of, of smart by some kind of fixed certification. It has to actually evolve as we figure things out, as we become more collaborative. In fact, it should be all about collaboration. I think the expectations of HR going forward 
is that it's going to be more and more, I mean, we've talked about for years, the move from traditional HR to strategic HR. And in part, that's been echoed by a move from the basic functions to the talent orientation. If you consider that and you just sort of draw the line, trend lines of traditional to, to strategic and basic to talent, if what HR is going to be about is talent strategically, then it has to be more than just about hiring and socialization or onboarding and performance management and structure and compensation. It has to actually be a holistic view of all those things that is a honestly, probably the biggest customer of people analytics data within the organization. And that, by the way, has not been the case necessarily. We haven't had data scientists in the traditional HR. They started in HR, they moved to sort of a central hub or shared service. They've moved up into the sort of C-level focus these days. But I think HR should be trying to grab that back. And they should do so with this excuse. People thought that if we all move virtual, and we had all this technology, we really wouldn't have nearly as much need for HR. I think HR professionals are some of the busiest people out there these days. They become communication specialists. They become pulse survey experts. I mean, the, the way that the field has moved to respond to the pandemic, by and large, I'm just so heartened by and impressed by. And so this is your moment. This is the moment to make it clear that actually we have something to offer because we're going to represent the human side of things as technology continues to help us think about that in different ways. And people analytics, data analytics, you know, real estate, all these pieces uh, start coming together and, and just make give us a seat at the table, I think, in a way that perhaps we haven't claimed before. So that, that's obviously I'm not exactly impartial, David. You could have someone, you know, this would be a great counterpoint moment where somebody who really thinks that HR shouldn't exist in 10 years would be here and tell me that all the evidence I just offered is true and all the conclusions I offered are fake. But that's up to us, honestly. And I think we, as we spoke last week, that in many organizations, HR's played a central role during the pandemic. It's been likened by, by some commentators to the role the CFO played in the global financial crisis. And I think we agree that those HR leaders and those HR functions that are doing that are the ones that are well-equipped. They do have, A, they have talented people, but B, they have thriving people analytics teams. They have executives who, who want answers to questions. Uh, and they are, as you pulling those various pieces of the jigsaw together. But because the focus has been primarily, it seems, in many organizations around employee well-being, employee experience during the crisis, HR has got such a key role to play in that, whether people are virtual, whether they're hybrid, whether they're in, in the office. Of course, it makes the employee experience even more complex because you've got to think about the employee experience and all those different modalities. If you're thinking about a, a CHRO now, what are some of the key attributes of a, of, a, of a CHRO who is successfully managing to do this? And I think we talked about the key resources. So what are some of the key attributes of, this, of, of CHROs that are really leading during the crisis and maybe prior to that as well? I mean, to some extent, you're asking an architectural question, I think. I, I'm using the word intentionally because we've been talking about physical architecture. So we have physical architecture, we have digital architecture, and we have HR architecture. That's how we've thought about it. And others, in, you know, so there's also the CFO, obviously, there are other parts of the organization. I, I think the new CHRO, as much as we might not want to admit it, has to have familiarity with the other forms of architecture too. So if we want a, a CHRO who can speak the language of a CTO, that person has to have background in that. And if we want a, a CHRO who can speak the language of, of data analytics, that person has to have some background in that. It doesn't mean that they have to be an expert in it, but you know, that means that 
when we throw words like Tableau or we throw words around like, um, I don't know, name, name your people analytics term, David. Give me, give me one or two. Oh, you've put me on the spot there now, haven't you? But, um, well, yes, I mean, understanding the difference between uh, correlation and causation, quite basic, but, you know, it's quite important. People analytics term will be actually just translating some of those findings that are data into a, into a story that actually compels people to take action. So it's that comfort with data, that comfort with analytics, but understanding of the business problem and how you frame the insights to get action. That's what we see. I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be the CHRO, of course. But as you said, I think CHROs that are not just sponsoring analytics, but are actually involved in analytics and passionate about it. I think those are the ones that are developing those thriving people analytics functions underneath them so and i would agree and so as i as i think about training the next generation you know my course is entirely structured around the traditional ways of doing things that we know have had some success and certain failures the leading edge or bleeding edge ways of doing things which we know have had some successes and some failures and having i hope a, a set of individuals who will grow up into the role that understand how they might try to blend those into a hybrid form to use the word we've thrown around in this conversation they need to grow up under chros who are familiar with all those assets too and so that that is a very different specification than you know the traditional which is oh you grow up through compensation or you grow up through talent and and after you've grown up in those you you hire through the rest you fill out the team um, and you end up running things like a succession process. I mean, I'm 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 oversimplifying, and my apologies. I'm, I'm in some respects I'm channeling our haters, not our lovers. Um, but but that track, I don't think is going to get us the CHROs that we see, or the chief people officers that we see, who are doing the kind of work that we want to do. It's more of the kind of track of people. Um, well, you could look at a number of, I, I, I hate calling out one person because then it ends up, um, I, there are so many to choose from. There are a lot of people actually out there who are doing this well, but that's, that's how I would position it. And actually, you know, what we're, you know, what I'm seeing now is a lot of CHROs have actually spent a considerable amount of time in the business, you know, working directly with customers in marketing or sales or in business operations. And, you know, if, if we want HR to be a function that delivers more business value than by definition, if you spent time in the business, surely that should increase your chances of doing that because you understand, you know, what business leaders need from HR. And actually, that leads quite nicely. You, you mentioned that you teach the second year MBA course on managing human capital at Harvard Business School, and some of those people, I guess, will have careers in HR, and many won't. But what are what are the few what are future leaders saying about the role of HR and how it's changing? Well, I'll I'll say a couple of things. First, there's more interest in the course than there almost has ever been in the past. So that's, um, and, I, and I don't think that has anything to do with me. I think that has to do with the topic. Uh, I do think that this topic has become interesting to our MBAs in ways that it might not have been interesting before, uh, in part, and, and for again, for two different reasons. Some people are seeing this as a career in a way they wouldn't have seen it before because they think the questions are interesting and the transformations that are coming ahead of us are going to be fascinating to live through and, and manage. Um, some of them, actually probably don't subscribe to the fact that HR is necessary in the future, but believe that they need all the skills and tools of it. Um, and so they want to be the CTO or they want to be the CFO or they want to be whatever, whatever it is they want to be or the, the founder who actually gets this stuff. Um, and so they're in the course to try and understand what it is that the other half um, understands. 
So in that sort of answer one is there's increased interest. Answer two, um, they are highly skeptical of the fact that an industry that has brought about not the pandemic, obviously, but some of the other challenges of 2020 is equipped to handle the solutions. So questions of bias, questions of, um, of a lack of meritocratic answers and decisions of a lack of processes that truly yield anything more than what somebody wanted them to yield. Um, there's a healthy amount of skepticism I see in the classroom. I, 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 I think in part that that ebbs and flows with the context around us. And is that, is that HR failing? Well, I suppose it is HR failing. Or is it, is it more a case of HR not being brave enough to tackle some of those biases that they see in some of the bad, bad leadership, frankly, that, that, that pervades in organizations? In my view, one of the most valuable things they get in the course, and this was an, at, this was, this was a, an exceptional part of being virtual this semester. Um, cause I didn't teach in the hybrid classroom. I actually honestly didn't want to teach in the hybrid classroom. I preferred all virtual. That's a whole other conversation if you want to go there. But, um, you know, I have guests come, wonderful alums and others who devote their time to coming in to visit. So I had, for example, Nadia Rowlinson, who's the CPO, uh, sorry, chief people officer. It can be confusing to those who think of that as a product officer, uh, chief people officer of Slack before that live nation, before that Rakuten. Um, I have people like, Helena Folks, who was the CEO of, of the Hudson's Bay Company, and before that she was president of CBS, come and talk to them about the ways that they are thinking about um, this relationship between development, development paths, and CEOs and CHROs and how they interact. And, and I think most of them actually are giving the students a view that the spirit is there, um, whether that spirit and bravery is the question or whether they're just seeing the best of the best, I think they're split on. Students don't know and they're waiting to sort of see that out because they've seen bad and they've seen good in the world. And the question is, is HR not brave enough or is HR not skilled enough? That, that I don't think they have enough data points yet to, to establish. But I do think that this problem is partially solved by role modeling. Um, and, and so that, that's what I do. And that's what I actually hope is being, is being done out there too. I will say, you know, the, the, in terms of role modeling, sometimes I'm accidentally right. Um, so we had, we had the chance, we do a, a session on talent development where we pick somebody who got a talent development plan, like a 10 year plan for becoming CEO. Um, and we see how they actually became a powerhouse executive, but we, we, we can actually go back and they're willing to share these, these documents that, that they make these successful people look like they were totally unsuccessful 10 years ago. Um, that was Helena this year. Um, last year was Jane Fraser. Um, and so, you know, I think again, as we see more and more role models and Jane is a person who deeply believes in the value of HR and people, um, but not in the old version of it, uh, in yeah. the new version of it. Well, Ethan, I think we could probably carry on talking for a lot longer, but I think Ian, the show's producer, would probably kill me. So um, I'm going to get, get to the last question now. And this may be a case of sum summarising some of the stuff that you've already said. Um, so this is one of the ones that we'll put out as a video clip. It's a question we're asking all our guests on the show in this series. You know, what should HR leaders do to help prepare their organisations for this future where there is likely to be 
more remote and hybrid working post-pandemic? If I were going to put together a recipe, step one, capture the learning from this last year that none of us have had the time to capture. We don't want to go back to normal. We want to go forward to something that looks different. And, and HR in particular has just learned so much. It would be a shame to lose it. Two, on the basis of that learning, keep experimenting. Experiment with spaces, open, closed, digital, non-digital, hybrid, whatever that means, hopefully in a way that doesn't create a second-class citizen, no matter how we do it, but experiment with it and make those experiments agile. We're not talking about year-long experiments. We're talking about week-long or at most month-long. Um, and as we have discovered, we have the ability to flex more muscles than we thought. Things that we thought were tenure investments don't have to be. And so we have license to make those experiments happen. And then maybe more specifically than that, um, be there as you have been there for your organizations as we continue to shift. It's going to be a mess in 2021 as some people are vaccinated and some are not, as some geographies have surges and some do not, as some want to go back to work and some cannot whatever going back to work means, because people keep using that phrase as if people aren't working at home, but nonetheless, you know, we, we do have to define that together. Be there for people the way you've been with an openness to having conversations, not just about our traditional tools, but about the technological tools that people actually see as the fundamentals and foundations of HR today, whether they are data analytics and people analytics, whether they are um, just simply communication tools like Zoom and WebEx and Chime and um, and Meets, and I think I've gotten I think I've gotten almost everyone represented there. I'm sure there's someone I missed. Um, and Slack. I mean, just the wealth of tools offers us the opportunity to advise people on which ones to use where, just like we can advise our CEOs on when to be in person, and when to be virtual. That advice on the basis of experimentation and learning is going to be valuable beyond 2021. Someone in the organization is going to claim ownership of it. Let's it be us. It has to do with people. We understand human better behavior better than most. And, and, and so if, if there were like one really strong piece of advice, it would be just keep being there. Um, just yeah. keep being present. If it means writing the email for your organization every week about how things are changing, then do that. If it means running another Pulse survey, do that. But all along, make sure you're drawing a line. We started with three curves, right? We don't want to be the V and we don't want to be the flat line. We want to be the steadily increasing curve. And we have all the ingredients for it as long as we keep putting the recipe together and recreating the recipe recipe and recreating the recipe, a little less sugar, a little more good stuff um, as we go. What a brilliant summary, Ethan. It's been fantastic having you as a guest on the show. As I said, we could have probably pushed this to a two-hour episode, uh, but Ian definitely would have uh, had something to say about that. Um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, find out more about your work? 
And, and David, I have to say, I'm, I'm still waiting for your kids and your dog to show up. I'm a little disappointed we haven't seen them yet or heard them yet. The yet. dog has come in. The dog is on the bed, but he came in quietly. Oh, well, well behaved. He, 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 he deserves a promotion. <laughs> I'm always happy to continue conversations I start on podcasts like these. My email address is just simply the letter E at hbs.edu. Um, you can find me also on Twitter at Ethan Bernstein. Um, and of course, if you go to the HBS website, uh, hbs.edu slash ebernstein, you will find me as well. But um, And someday, perhaps, you will actually find me back on campus. But for the moment, David, I'm more than happy being virtually at home. Well, in your rather amazing studio, and we'll put all those links on the publicity around there, because I know on the uh, on the HBS site, it's got a collection of all, all all your work, so it's you don't have to go around searching on MIT or you don't have to go searching on Harvard Business Review. They're all there in one place, so uh, we'll put the link to that. And Ethan, thank you very much. Um, I hope to meet you in person one day when um, things get back to the new normal, whatever the new normal is. Um, I'm actually missing New York, so uh, hopefully uh, get over there at some point. As long as you're coming to me, I say I've, as I now teach in a studio with six big screens. Um, more cameras than that, microphones and such, and actually I'm having a great time with my students. I don't know, David, if I ever want to get onto a plane ever again. So if you're coming to me, that's great. But uh, I don't know, perhaps I'll change my mind in 2021. In the meantime, um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to speak to all of you virtually. Great. Thank you, Ethan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Guru Sethipathy, Global Head of People Strategy and Analytics at Capital One, on how to deliver value at scale with people analytics. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.